Hey guys. It's alright. In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Piscatelli, and we are all graced with the presence of a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him wherever he goes, my dear friend, the lovely Raymond Wong Jr. Thank you, thank you, and welcome to the show. This is episode seven for season one, and today we're going to be talking about democracy, all about it. We're going to cover democracy in perspective. We want to make sure we understand why we appreciate it so much. We're going to talk about what it's good for. What's what are what's the point of demo or what's the purpose of democracy, um, and what does it look like? So we use the word a lot, right? Democracy is thrown around and people love to like try and put me on point by saying, well, you know, we have a republic, right? Not a democracy. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm not saying we have a democracy. <laughs> so let's, let's, we'll, we'll talk all about that part of it. And just for the people that fight with about the republic versus democracy, um, you're worried about the wrong things, in my opinion. Uh, you need to correct people on much deeper issues than, this isn't a grammar lesson, um, this is philosophical, <laughs> this is deep thought, okay? So when you correct someone on something as simple as that, you're basically turning them off right at the beginning. So uh, it, to have an open discussion, I think we have to be less critical about some phrases like that. So for at least for this conversation here on Citizen Do Good, we are clearly acknowledging that yes, we are a republic and we do not want to hear a lot of commentary because we describe democracy for what it is. And that's what is overlaying our republic. But as always, we're open to debate. It's just some of them are a little more trying than others. Some are more valuable. I hate to say it. <laughs> but, you know, you want to talk about what you're going to replace democracy with in our republic, then we can talk about it. <laughs> We do want to hear your truths, right? Uh, right, or, right or wrong. And, you know, we work on it together to get to the, the, the truth, the general truth, which is the truth. But everyone has their personal truth. We respect that. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to figure out where we can agree, where the common ground is. So let's, uh, we're going to take a little bit of time and put democracy in perspective. And in order to do that, we're going to take you on a little bit of tour, a little bit of tour of history. Um, well, not too much, but touch on Western civilization and, and put in perspective the rise of democracy in relation to juxtaposition with the Enlightenment and the idea of knowledge, like logic, fact-based, scientific, reason-based knowledge, right? Not um, not religious idolatry-based knowledge, not you know religious books. Um, but the stuff that humans have studied and learned and figured out and, and then built upon or disproven and reproven and whatever we've actually done using logic and science. And that takes us back um, to a time people generally refer to as the Dark Ages. So Ray and I were doing a little bit of research uh, to try and keep ourselves in, in bounds here, but the fact checkers will have the last the last word on the matters. Um, but talking about the Dark Ages, we're going back around 400, uh, 400 years, uh, common era. Uh, I guess some people might refer to that as AD, right? After death. So that ran all the way up through like 1,000 common era, um, 1,000 years. And, and, and that's a long time ago. Like if this is, you know, the year 2020, we're talking about the year 1,000. And we're going back to when this is after Rome. We've got the Byzantinian Empire. I think they're in New Constantinople, which is Istanbul in Turkey. That was the new center of what Roman Catholic or Catholic power at the time. And then in the East, we had, we had all of the Arab nations um, rising. And they, they actually had all the science at the time. Right, so we had these dark ages all over Europe. Um, this is before the Americas were discovered, and then um, you know the the religious organizations in and around Europe were were trying to assert their authority, 
And in the meantime, <laughs> thankfully, science, the seeds of knowledge, were being you know, planted and, and, and grown and, and built upon during that time. Because during the Dark Ages, Europe really wasn't learning all that much. They weren't really investing much in knowledge um, or building upon knowledge. So that at least it was happening somewhere among the human species on Earth around that time. And then we end up coming to the Enlightenment. And would it, I, I captured here that happened sometime around 1600s, and our country isn't founded until 1776, or we don't declare our independence until 1776, right? Um, and so you you have to keep in perspective that the Enlightenment, um, the Enlightenment is relatively young compared to uh, how old our societies were coming into the United States. And so when the founding fathers got together and <laughs> they are the enlightened people at the time, we've talked about that before, right? They were the philosophers, the landowners, they, they were at this precipice in time and place where they had the ability to say, you know what, we, we, we know what knowledge is um, and we know how to care for it. Um, and we know how to potentially lead ourselves. And so I, I, find that the, I find that democracy and knowledge, the enlightenment, are intertwined. A, from the historical underpinnings that we were just talking about, but B, I don't think you can necessarily have one without the other, right? To have true democracy requires full thought, complete thought, analytical thought, logic, um, you've got to be able to argue positions. You've got to be able to, you know, discern facts for arguing those positions. Um, that's really important for for something democratic to succeed. And you can't have the value of logic, really, um, or the knowledge, right, that comes from it um, that was created through the Enlightenment without some facility to t take care of it, to care for it. And universities was our way of doing that. Earlier, we were talking about universities, um, a different, different topic. We were probably focused a little bit more on the mechanized form of university that, was, that came into being after people came back from World War II with their GI bills and all of that, right? It, it became much more a manufactured model. But back when the founders were creating the country, you know, universities were the place to care for knowledge, I mean, some churches maybe, you know, appreciated some aspects of it, but the only place where knowledge could truly be free to grow and explore its potential and for humans to build on the shoulders of other humans properly was through university. Universities where we house knowledge. And then some people might say Masonics and, you know, there's always, always groups of people who want to corral things for their own purposes. But ultimately, I think the university system that sprung up was, was intended to take care of knowledge. And um, we've steadily somewhat steered away from that in a lot of ways. So I'll go ahead and pause. I think that lays out all of the democracy and perspective. I feel like I've stolen your role. No, I can't say that. I don't know if that's possible. And what we want to take back for people is that we talk about here that the Dark Ages started around that 400 uh, post-common era, okay? Now, one thing that's important to know is that that coincided uh, earlier with the collapse of the Roman Empire, right? So the Roman Empire collapsed, and the Roman Empire was one of the groups, although very, very focused on conquest and, uh, in, uh, and um, integration, kind of like the Borg, uh, they they would bring in all these societies, right? But the, the, the Romans had sewage systems, right? They had running water. The the Romans were a progressive society that was that was using education and, and frankly um, trying to use republic to bring a greater existence to their country. Now you saw what happened when they collapsed. You see this dark ages come in, right? And this is a brain drain period, I like to call it, folks, because what happened is that First off, like I like to quote Eddie Izzard, he's one of our favorite comedians out there, but they weren't counting down, right? That's such a joke when we have like 300 BC and 200 BC, right? The, the, the world was not counting down like we started at this and we, and we slowly got down and we restarted, right? What did he say? What happens when we hit zero? Is it year pla? Is it year klumba-dumba? No, it, this, is, this is when the powers that be 
forced the population to capitulate to a new structure and a new normal. And over 400 years, as the Dark Ages evolved, that was the basically a, an organization taking so much power and control that they, they essentially forced everyone. So in 400 years, everyone's dumped into the Dark Ages because the educational institutions and any of the, the places of free thought, and even the governments were becoming more and more subject to the growing church, right? And the church is the one that saw knowledge as a threat to their power. One thing you're going to hear from this group, from CDG in particular, is that we recognize that all institutions have a life cycle. They, they grow, they're thoughtful, they're philosophical, they're methodical. Then they hit this weird point where they only, they become self-sustaining for the good or for the bad. There's no middle ground. Institutions all hit a point. The universities, our democracy, <laughs> slavery. I don't care what system you put in there. There is a period where it comes and it's under great debate, it's under great scrutiny, and the institution either sustains itself for the better of everyone, or it sustains itself for itself, for its self-interest, right? So getting back to now the founding fathers, Michael said very astutely that democracy, you must have knowledge, okay? The founding fathers knew they had slaves. They knew they had child labor. They knew they had all these challenges, right? They knew that the state's were basically divided by two separate economies, a slave economy, and they understood the risk the banks had. They understood the risk that kings cause, mm -hmm. right? So they came to the table, when we see them in that room, right, that famous image of them in the room debating, right? You know, they're sitting back and they're, and they're almost in deep thought. You, in every picture I see it almost, look at it, they almost look like they're sit back and they're having an, a deep thought conversation. And I, I need everyone to stress that these folks, a lot of us are making decisions about the founding fathers, X, Y, Z, and you don't even acknowledge what they understood at the time. The truth, right? Women could not vote. Women were seen as incapable, right? You had to be a landowner to even have a seat at the table. Those types of facts, and they knew this, right? But you don't. A lot of Americans don't even realize that if you weren't a landowner, and then even when we freed the slaves, if you didn't own land, you couldn't vote. Those types of knowledge facts help you have an enlightened discussion. And that will be the challenge here at Citizen Do Good is we're, we're trying to have an enlightened discussion. So we're not going to go into the rabbit hole of slavery was X number of years ago, right? What we're going to talk about is, okay, great. Well, what have we done since slavery? So again, to pull it all back, Democracy and perspective is subject to the same life cycle that we believe exists for corporations, for people, for people even, right? Individuals, you struggle, some of us, not all of us, but you struggle to raise yourself by your bootstraps. And then when you reach it, what happens? Do you accumulate all the wealth in the world and stick it in your ears? Or do you reach back and lift people? I think the problem is we're sticking that money in our ears too much. That, that is a culture that's starting to take over. And democracy in perspective um, needs to be nurtured through education. And again, we've lost, we've lost the will to educate because tweets don't, won't contain an entire textbook. You know, tweets, this tweet society where we think we can take, you know, a couple of uh, sentences and get knowledge from it. Um, that is lazy knowledge consumerism, in my opinion. There needs to be a renaissance in knowledge and, and so we can secure our democracy. Um, and again, I've said a lot there, Mike, but mm -hmm. I want to stress that for citizen do good, this is kind of our, or excuse me, for citizens prerogative, you know, our sponsorship is citizen do good for prerogative. We want to help everybody reach that common good and protect you from, frankly, um, your own misgivings. And it's not your fault. It's the education system. It's the church. It's the, it's the pastor. I, I don't know who exactly told you you didn't have to know yourself better or know your democracy better. Um, but somebody along the system has discouraged you, whether it be us eliminating civil education from the schools, whether it us being depressing teachers, keeping them in the classroom for nine hours, but paying them very little. All of these are slight mechanisms to depress your ability to think. And I look forward to that debate on anyone who's listening and thinks otherwise. Tell me if it's not a mechanism to stop you from think. 
a good point, Ray. Um, a lot of these mechanisms, a lot of these institutions have gone uncared for. And so they're deteriorating and we, our society is deteriorating along with it. You know, it's easy to blame one thing, but the truth is it's a lot of little things, right? It's a, it's a hemming, it's a hemming in of the people um, from a lot of directions. It's, it, to me, it's, it's like boiling the frog. And I don't know if everybody's familiar with that. I think it's, um, it's a very unpleasant idea, but it's something that happens in, for frogs. Unfortunately, if you put them in a pot of water and you start boiling it, they don't jump out because they don't realize it's hot until it's too late. I haven't done that. I don't recommend it. But it's a phrase we use. And it's something that's been, I think, slowly happening to society in our country. We've really lost the core value of appreciating the, the, the worth of knowledge and the position democracy has in relationship to it. I mean, you can think about, we were, before we started recording this episode, one of the points we were saying is like, well, can you imagine um, knowledge under dictatorship? <laughs> knowledge is what the state says it is, right? Or the leader of that state. <laughs> um, you know, when you've got one, you know, and this is a slippery slope around the textbook and nationalizing, you know, nationalizing a common core. People get a little nervous about that because, you know, we are different communities and maybe we, we hold central tenants um, values a little differently or whatnot. And I, you know, I think that should be respected, but at the same time, we all need to be given a common framework of how to operate this Republic. And like you said, Ray, civics has been gutted. There is no civics in school. There's no social studies. Um, and then, you know, the whole institution in and of itself. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there. This is a good time for us to hear a message from our sponsor. Fulfilling a dream where all possess an intrinsic love for self-rule that is reciprocated with equal justice under the law. Citizen do good values all of the amendments of the Constitution, along with the original core documents. It all forms a framework and an operating manual for the Republic and provides the means to change with the times. The time is now to deeply re-examine our current implementation of governance for the dawning of a new day. We are a proud sponsor of Citizens Prerogative, a major partner in spreading the good work about civic love and the power of change for us all. Check out, check out citizendogood.com where you can join our newsletter and stay current on our latest efforts. Support our efforts through Patreon and gain access to behind-the-scenes content and discounts at our store. And shop our wares. It's an easy win for you and the whole of our republic. Thank you for our patronage, your patronage. I think we, uh, I went ahead and messed you up there a little bit, Mike. You're welcome. Uh, it's the best case for pre-recorded that I have out there. Mike, I, I know I'm going to break the rule here. I want to take us back just to one thing. Mm -hmm. um, you, you dropped the dictatorship and the fact that knowledge is so important, right? Okay, so just really quick to frame it up for people. China, Mao Tse-Sung is losing power. The famine, the great famine was terrible for him. His credibility shot, right? At 70 plus years old, he broadcasted a video, and it doesn't even show him swimming, by the way. He swam across, swam across the Yangtze River. And some people said he swam seven miles long. And he did it faster than any Olympic swimmer ever. At 70-plus years old, this overweight uh, Mao Tse-sung was able to swim uh, across a river. And the people bought it. And the youth bought it. Mao's little red book, little red book, that revolution, the, the red, the cultural revolution was the second. The first was the, the great leap forward, and it was a terrible mistake, and he had lost all credibility. But by just broadcasting a video of him swimming, sorry, swimming across the water, because I, I never saw him swimming ever in the video. It looked like he was floating there. Um, but this was enough for the Chinese people to say, wow, we believe you, whatever you say. Because again, there were no mass institutions for knowledge, right? There was a large peasantry. 
So in turn, the peasantry is going to take what they get. And they're going to believe that a 70 plus year old man swam faster than Olympic swimmers. And you don't even have to you don't even have to see it, right? The video never shows him swimming. It was just the propaganda. But again, if you've removed all deep thought, if you've removed all that key knowledge, you are susceptible. And that's why I just wanted to bring that up again, Michael, is a clear example of where a, um, where a communist government or a dictatorship was successful in manipulating people. And now Mao's picture hangs across China. And the only reason it's there, the idealism, is because of that swim across the Yangtze which frankly was probably fake. Wow. Wow. <laughs> ah, that's a really excellent way to illustrate that point. Thank you, Ray. So let's talk a little bit about what else democracy is good for. So we've, you know, I, I'm going to say belabored the point, but I don't know that we can belabor the point of how valuable knowledge is and how precarious the world is around the idea of knowledge and controlling it and, you know, controlling what the truth is or controlling the flow of facts. Um, it's scary and dangerous. And, and we just, you know, I think it's important for people to appreciate the fact that it's, it's not something to be taken for granted. So besides this really grandiose idea about, you know, as, as a human species, in order for us to survive the great extinction, we got to continue to retain and build upon our knowledge in a very constructive and, and, and purposeful way. Uh, what else is democracy good for? The typical things that we usually think of democracy as, right, is having a seat at the table, a say um, in our system because it's a republic we have representatives, right? We have proxy seats. So I don't get one seat, but um, there's a seat that represents my, my values or my points. Uh, and I've selected a representative for that. It's also um, good for supporting pluralism, right? Because different groups of people get to select different, different representatives and theoretically, Theoretically, those different representatives present those points of view, uh, a pluralistic set of views, because as you're always good to point out, Ray, at the beginning of this thing, people sitting at the same table were coming at it with a very different perspectives, very different values, um, even a very different appreciation for human life and what human life meant. And who might be considered a human, like a fully fledged human versus, you know, a human that's property to be owned or traded or bartered. So it definitely, democracy is a, is a system that helps us to coordinate what needs to be done for the common good and for us to remain free, right? I mean, if this was, think of Game of Thrones. I don't know if you watched Game of Thrones, but like that, just imagine being a citizen of that kingdom or any of those kingdoms during any period of that show. How annoying. How would you be free to pursue happiness or prosperity or anything like that if you had to deal with all of these sniveling little families warring over your farmland every few years? They just... Well, when you see it, King's what is it? The king's I forget the main name of it, but the main capital was the most prosperous. It had the towns mm -hmm. and it had the economy. It had the villages surrounding it, right? So the seat of power, and, and frankly, the best place in the country right now is Washington, outside of, you know, the poor neighborhoods. Washington has, so when I was there, I was shocked. The development, mm -hmm. the, 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 the money, the shops were so expensive. The restaurants were three times the normal cost. They must be doing very well in the capital. How does that happen? Oh, they are. Oh, they are. It's, it's by design, but not for the greater good. That's for sure. So let's, so I mean, I think you gave us a great, um, some great ideas about this, this democracy, right, and, 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 and this idea that the founding fathers had a different um, take. The challenge for me is that 
the democracy we have today, everyone seems to just accept it, right? And, and one of the things we talked about in our early episodes is democracy is the vehicle on top of the chassis, right? This is this, this mechanism we use to drive our vehicle. But my question for people is, what has changed in a vehicle? Just let's, let's, let's use the analogy. Let's go down this path, Mike. How much has changed in a vehicle since the last hundred years, okay? Um, just a couple of things, right? Windshields used to decapitate people so we built better windshields to stop decapitating people. Um, people used to die by slamming their head into the, 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 the um, spirit steering wheel, right? We turned around and we increased, uh, we provided airbags, right? Seatbelts, mm-hmm. Seat all of these innovations. And what did this do? As we improved the system, it improved the roadways. Now we go 75 because our systems are safe enough to provide us a better, more streamlined experience. And that's the same thing for democracy. We've added nothing, okay? Over the last 200 years, we've added almost, okay, sorry, amendments aside, all of my hawks out there, I'm sorry, and fact checkers. We have tried to tune it, right? So I guess we have slightly added airbags. Some ground. We've gained some ground, but not holistically. Not like we've gained the ground, but we've done nothing but fight to retain the ground. Like that's if you're right. You know, it's like it's like um, emissions, like vehicle emission standards and laws around that. That's kind of like where we're at, right? right. (laughs) It's all over the place. I mean, at least we can all agree that seatbelts save lives. I believe we can all agree that seatbelts save lives. Well, that was controversial. It took us a long time to get everybody on that page. And, you know, that's, that's part of the challenges or the struggles with operating a democratic system is, you know, bringing everybody along for the ride. It would be a lot easier if we were all starting with the same baseline of understanding but how do you how do you do it? You have thoughtful debate. And Michael, I'm gonna be very frank. Like the seatbelt situation, you know, you and I grew up in the '80s and the '90s, and mm-hmm. you and I started driving in the '90s. Uh, well, some of us luckier than others. You started driving before me. But when I started driving, um, you know, people in the back seat. You know, this is where the this is where we the rubber hits the road with American democracy. We would, people would get in my vehicle, my car, and they would say, well, they get in the back seat, and they made a very astute observation when I tell them to put on their seatbelt they'd say, it's not legally required. And I would slam on the brakes, because I was a kid, and let them hit the seat and say, it is required because I don't want you to kill me when your body slams around this car because you're too stupid to wear your seatbelt. I said something a lot more curt because I was, I was a teenager, frankly, probably only 18, 19 at the time, but I just couldn't stand it. And I would actually kick people out of my car um, mid-highway I get out and pull over and say, step out of the vehicle. Because back then, you know, we were um, going to different warehouses and stuff, right? So sometimes we'd have people in my car that weren't my closest friends. We'd be transporting and having a good time with friends um, and they'd bring their friends. And some of these friends had really deep opinions. And, uh, but what they didn't expect is that unlike most people, I am not a pushover. I'm not passive about my, my freedoms. I'm not passive about my life. I know that you're creating risk for me and that's the same thing in democracy. Unless you know your law, unless you know your, what your history, unless you have some knowledge base, how do you protect your democracy? Right now, everyone is trying to protect their democracy by throwing out taglines, by throwing out propaganda, by saying jail her, right? That is not knowledge. That's not thought. That's it's not, not productive. It's not productive. It doesn't solve a problem. And Slamming on the brakes and addressing the issue is solves the problem. That's my opinion. You got to stop, turn around and address it. But too many times we don't want to turn around and address it. We're bystanders in our own democracy and in our lives. Frankly, we've been bystanders a lot in this, in this system. Probably too beholden to our feelings. I mean, at some point we'll, we'll talk about perception and how the brain works. So that's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a lot of emotion and, and people a lot of times will, will rely solely on their emotional responses to things to drive their decision-making or their opinions to form their opinions. And if they, just because they don't like somebody for a particular reason now suddenly creates an environment where, who cares what the law is or who really cares what the common good is 
going after that individual is somehow going to improve my life, I, there's a disconnect, a severe disconnect there. I mean, and, and, you know, I don't know who we're talking about. We could be talking about anybody at this point, but usually in politics right now, there's a lot of that throwing around those ideas of, you know, locking up your political rivals and, and things of that nature. And it's like, okay, well, we, we have a legal system for a reason. And if people are breaking the law, we need to go through that process. We can't be. But then you have the then you have the passive system, right? You have the education system that's supposed to be there to fight it from both ends, right? So the people that violate the law are subject to legal scrutiny, right, through the system. But then those we try to prevent people violating the law through education. And the education system is now pay to play. It's not an education system that's going to enable you to be the best citizen or frankly human that you can be. It, it is just meant to get you to check the box, to become disciplined, to, to fall in line with the system, right? To understand authority figures and to respect authority. There's all these mechanisms and it's all, it's all unfortunately very, very um, dictatorship like that's the unfortunate thing is everyone has to understand when we tear away arts when we tear away culture when we tear away critical thinking education mm -hmm. that is a move towards communism guess what china they eliminated arts and culture during the cultural revolution right because they saw it as a threat to the state's ability to control people and everyone is so scared about um, a mask mandate and calling that communism but in fact the communism or the dictatorship of our country is the erosion of education. It's, it's not who's yeah. in office. Our, thankfully, the Constitution is in place to control that, folks. What's actually creating the um, dictatorship or is creating a, frankly, a more of a um, mob rule or communist type in, in society, Marxist society, is this idea that, um, is this idea that you can take in a social media comment and meme and not research it, not analyze it. And it's not necessarily your fault because our schools didn't teach you how to research. And then the government didn't give you the infrastructure. So number one, the schools didn't teach you how to research and critically think. Number two, the federal government has never given you the infrastructure to have 24 hour internet and 24 hour water and power, right? So you are subject to like in the, on the reservation, they had to go collect their water from a spring that was six or seven miles away. They had to bring their trucks or buckets and literally pour water in to take it back to their house. You'll have no time to enlighten yourself and control your democracy at that point, right? But is that purposeful? It's that bad. Our small towns are a little bit better, but in the Native American communities, it's acute. And you have to ask yourself, was that to control them? Is that to prevent them from expressing their democratic ability? I would debate you on that night and day, and I'm talking to the general public and those of you who want to say that it's the Native Americans' fault that they're in their situation, that it's their lot in life. You have to have knowledge so that when you say things like that, you won't say things like that, right? Because you actually understand what we've done to the Native Americans. We've consolidated their land over 200 years. They used to have a good amount of land and we've consolidated them and we've stuck them in the worst parts of the country. And if you can, you know, and what our system learns from how it treats one group, it takes and applies to treat the rest. Like, if you can take an overaction against the population and you get a desired outcome, then what's to discourage you from trying to use it against others that may not be in alignment with what your goals are? And you are the person in power. You are the one with authority. The precedence. And that's why we went to civil war. That's why we settled slavery by civil war, because we made the, the terrible mistake or we made the deal. I don't know how to frame it exactly because I'm not there, compromise. but we made the compromise, right? But what it did is it just led to deepening that system in the South and deepening freedom in the North. And in the end, the two were incompatible. That You yeah. cannot have- It set the stage. It set the stage for the showdown. And we're still in it. Oh, and we're so, still living through the showdown. So before we run out of time, Michael, can you yeah. just segue into slavery and how they prevented education, which is, again, a, a clear indicator of freedom control and democracy control? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, so thinking about people being able, a, a democracy will die in the dark and the dark is ignorance. And, you know, you, knowledge is power. Democracy is power through the vote, right? And representation. But without the knowledge, you can't really execute or leverage or utilize effectively democracy to improve your lot, to improve your way about things. And so, you know, in the South, for so many reasons, of course, it was illegal for slaves to learn, to educate to themselves or each other, to read, to possess a book, I imagine, could trigger some kind of mob activity, potentially a lynching. I'm sure there's... A piece of paper, Michael. A piece, a piece of, of paper, paper. Words on a paper. What are you doing? Yeah. You, you're not supposed to learn because then you're going to get up at a... You know, you're going to... You might want something better for yourself. You may realize that you're actually a fully capable human, uh, equally capable of the others who are holding you back and actually taking all the rewards of your labor, all the fruit of your work. And even if they escape to the industrious North, what are they going to do when they can't read? Right. right. They get, they struggle to get a foothold. And then those uh, like the police, frankly, would come in from the South and pull you back to the South because yeah. if you, you can't escape to the North, if you have no skills. So it was systematic elimination of that freedom. Yeah, the name of the law now is escaping me. It was one of the last compromising laws that really tipped things over at the end when, oh, the Fugitive Slave Act. I think that was the one where, you know, the, the state can come and recapture escaped slaves. I, yeah, unbelievable. Um, but it, I mean, it's all real. It's factual. I mean, we say, you say unbelievable from, from today's perspective. Um, for those of us who, who look back at all of those, realities and and see where we've come from and and how much further we we have yet to go and a lot of it comes back to this knowledge because all of us as individuals right now are getting lumped together um there's a book can't remember the name of the guy i think he was the head of yale university it was called the meritocracy trap and it was interesting and it caught a lot of flack because i think it tried to make people feel well, it didn't try to make people feel anything. They're just laying out the picture that we're all hooked into the system, right? Even the meritocratic elites who, you know, were born rich and went straight to university and met all their friends and got slipped into like, you know, C-suite positions because that's the group of people that they know and interact with, that, that nepotistic. It, it comes out that we don't have a meritocracy. <laughs> we have a nepotocracy. <laughs> Um, and it was just because people were worried about like being able to retain this, you know, professional way of running things and, you know, the professional elite politicking because we established this world order under democratic norms and democratic norms are difficult and messy and painful. And it made people really nervous. Can you really prove democracy on a global scale? And this is one of the things, you know, the new administration is going to have to deal with is, America coming back and somehow, who, who are we to speak on behalf of democracy, <laughs> to promote democracy after, you know, what we've been through? I think we have to reestablish some of our credibility, but I digress. Um, but in this country, it all comes back to knowledge because you can't effectively navigate or operate or choose a better life for yourself under yeah. our republic otherwise. And I, I, I hark back to our episode. Uh, was it to Michael to be free? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you'll have to keep me honest there. But, the, uh, but we, we posted an image on that episode of the Pennsylvania schoolhouse, um, which has to do with the, 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 the individuals in the well-to-do society after the freedom of the slaves, the federal government wasn't setting up schools. There was no mechanism to educate or provide schools to the slaves or former slaves, the freemen, as they were called at the time. And in a sense, the only way there were educational schoolhouses and such is if they were set up by private individual or organizations. So what a scary idea is that, right? And that's the way we've propped up our country. We have people that have zero interest in the betterment of 
of the general population in the government. And we have all these charitable organizations and all of these, um, these gap measures, right? Trying to fill the gap of the American dream. And it's funny because people say that, you know, America is the most charitable nation in the world. Is it because we don't have a choice? Is it because if we didn't, our own government doesn't step up and take care of it? You know, we, we have to. What choice mm-hmm. do we have? Because some people, not all of them, unfortunately not, people like kings like Bezos um, turn around and say, let me go for the common good, right? Um, apparently, you need $100 billion to fill sleep at night. You know, I, I don't know what makes him, what makes an individual like that not say, I should be putting a billion dollars into the school system and helping restore civics, right? Where is that? But again, Amazon is part of the consumer economy, right? If people realize that consumerism yeah. is is false, he's done. Well, and I was thinking about it the other day too. I don't I don't think we we want Amazon providing the means of education. <laughs> shouldn't well, shouldn't our democracy the media, right? right exactly. <laughs> shouldn't our shouldn't our republic choose to educate its own citizens citizens or or provide the foundations for them to participate in the system because that's the only one we've got here, here. But, but this <laughs> folks tells us is that remember the pay for play issue is a system a, 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 an overlay on our constitution right now and that's what citizens prerogative is trying to do is pull back the onion of the overlay that's been put on our system but what it's going to start with is a lot of education so um, michael and myself will continue to dive in our teams will continue to dive in to find out facts and we will be transparent when we're wrong. And what we hope is that you can join us in the conversation because what we talk about, hopefully you're blown away by a lot of this stuff because it's historical fact and it's just putting it in perspective, but that's what we want. We want you to join the conversation. And when you're ready, join us because we're looking to interview every American that wants to be on here because we want to hear your truths and we want to help you hone the knowledge. Not say you're wrong, not say you're misled, but actually help you lead to the water. It's your choice whether you drink. Um, But here at Citizens Prerogative, the prerogative is to get to the truth. It's to get to the history and it's to get to the knowledge to secure our democracy. And we thank you for being part of the discussion. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about what democracy looks like. This may not be the biggest part of the episode, but I want us to talk a little bit about putting it in context because it's been a moving target right? Under the original patriarchy, we, in air quotes, the definition varied. (laughs) Um, We used to elect state representatives and they uh, would select congressional representatives, right? So the idea that we directly elect our senators and we directly elect our president is, is relatively new. Those are enhancements that were made along the way. Um, and people don't think, I, I don't know that people are really aware of that. I don't know that they really realize that it, we talk about the fact that it was just landowners and things like that. Well, literally, they were the only ones. All of, all of the decision-making was always elevated. So the most a citizen got to do that wasn't involved in government, you, you're a landowning proprietor probably of a business, you would vote for your representative for maybe your state legislature couple of those and then they select who goes to congress and then congress would select who would become president (laughs) um so you know when we originally established the democracy the we who is eligible and uh, able to vote or express an opinion uh, varied quite a bit um I put a lot of information about that in here. Uh, I don't think we need to really go through it. To me, it's fascinating to think about how our government used to operate itself, how our representatives used to be selected. Um, But I think it's really keen and critical for people to zero in on that right now because of the Electoral College. The Electoral College is one of the last artifices, last little compromise that was slipped in at the end that's never been modified it hasn't been enhanced now they've democratized the vote they are forebearers they democratize the vote so that we get to vote for president today but the electoral college is there as a mitigator 
they can do whatever they want. Technically, <laughs> technically. They, they can do whatever they want. I mean, they hurt their legitimacy. And I think that, unfortunately, the Electoral College's goal is to remain as um, unknown as possible because I think Electoral College has started to become more prevalent in the recent history, but I think that the Electoral College isn't widely discussed. I don't think you learn about it really that much in school. Uh, I think it's purposeful because they don't, because I think if you are a knowledge-based person and you pull back the layers on the Electoral College, you'll realize it makes absolutely no sense. And the way it's allocated is based on slave ownership and it's based on, it's based on a system to make sure that the lower population states didn't get uh, left out of the global decision. But the vote for president is a populist decision. It is not to be relegated to electoral college votes. It should be a popular, a matter of popularity because the president rules over everyone. He doesn't rule over states. He doesn't rule over counties or districts, et cetera. So why isn't it the popular vote? Again, because slavery needed to make sure they maintained their control because the slave states had lower populations because it was very small, wealthy families that had large swaths of land being run by slaves. Whereas in the North, if you had a large swath of land, for the most part, it sometimes was slaves, but it also was paid labor, citizens, right? So they had to create this system to balance it out through the Electoral College, which wasn't finished business because Washington died untimely and they still wanted to take care of some business. They had that intention to eventually try to address slavery, but Washington died untimely due to a a strange throat ailment, you know, not even like anything major. He got a sore throat um, and then they leached him. Okay, so knowledge, again, knowledge. (laughs) They bloodlet him which is why knowledge is so important to protect our democracy. We may have had Washington for another 10 years if we had used a little knowledge. Um, but bloodletting, for some reason, was seen as um, intelligent. Um, and here we are now stuck still using the Electoral College, which was basically a safety valve. It was a safety mechanism for the elites to be able to maintain control if the citizens you know, didn't, didn't quite make a the right selection for the republic. They had, they had concerns about our competence, right? They like, sure did. Oh, oh they, they don't own land, so they must not be smart. And they don't, you know, they don't hold slaves, so they have zero intelligence and they have no idea. And, and of course, women were unstable emotionally. So I think that's was, the perfect segue, yeah, for me to wrap us up. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. So I just, I captured this and it, I'm just going to read it. The patriarchy, okay, the patriarchy that set up the system would say, we've earned our vote, right? Under today's system, as you likely know, we directly vote, like I said, for senators, House of Representatives, president, all kinds of offices um, relative, you know, to the version of the system back at 1.0. We enjoy a huge breadth of democracy. We enjoy more democracy in our country than we have since its founding. Um, but it's still pretty insufficient because you know there's only small groups of people that are really wielding the power and the control. And, and that goes back to the knowledge aspect of things, right? You keep the majority of people in a state of ignorance and chasing after money so that they can feed themselves and, and uh, you get to stay in power for a while. Uh, perception, right? right? Perception, perception of power. And you see how powerful that is with this election, the perception of power, right? People still think their president's in power. It, it's, it's insanely powerful that ma- that manipulation you're right sorry that's okay yeah so you know we've we've democratized the vote and the patriarchy would say we've earned it um they wouldn't be wrong to say that we've earned it because they were keenly aware of how far behind they had left us their fellow citizens we had some ground to catch up mentally right but plasticity and ingenuity prevailed beyond their imagination I mean, shortly after, we we won't talk about Reconstruction on this episode, but, you know, as soon as slaves were freed and given the opportunity to start lifting themselves by their own bootstraps with uh, with the help of their communities, the full potential power and beauty of the human being comes into fruition. You get to see it within a lifetime the plasticity of a human mind, even if it's been held back its entire life, as soon as it's exposed to the light of knowledge, can grow. It's very dramatic. Um, and, and so we've seen a lot of the fruits of that. And I think when they saw some of the fruits of that, it got 
it caused some people to get a little nervous, <laughs> uh, especially because they want, you know, whoever the founding fathers and, and everybody who are our ancestors, we want to idolize, right? They want to be seen as our saviors rather than our captors. Um, but thankfully now we have all of these technical technology platforms to help us try and disseminate knowledge among each other. Um, but it's up to us to pick up the mantle as individuals and make sure that we're learning. We're learning as we should to be good citizens. You, you definitely wrap that up very nicely. Um, and what I would like to say is I wish it was as nice as you said it. As always, the truth of the matter is that the systems are available, the networks are available to a portion of the country, the small right. towns and the, and the disenfranchised. And frankly, the people that voted um, for the Republican Party are individuals who do not have access to what we have in the cities. There is a, it is not just an, an issue of ideals. It's, it's an issue of accessibility. So mm -hmm. again, um, I, are the Republicans keeping it that way? Because it's a reliable vote. As long as you keep them ignorant and you, you control the narrative, tell me that's not what's going on. For those of you that are enlightened thinkers and those of you that are not mad at everything we've just said, think about it. Don't be mad at your fellow Americans. Don't be upset with them. They are, they are being subjugated by the system we all have been fighting to get out of, that we all have chosen knowledge to free ourselves but some individuals didn't even have the chance or they didn't even have the time because they're working in a diner and they can barely make ends meet you know whatever the case may be folks you have to people from an enlightened place have a really bad habit of looking down and from an enlightened place you need to come down from your stairway and talk and deal with what's really happening on the ground those people that can't even find the stairway to enlightenment The stairway to enlightenment. I feel like that should become, that should be the alternative to the highway to hell. <laughs> well, that's why we've got to change our culture in the future. I, it shouldn't be the rat race. It should just be a race. And it shouldn't be a highway to hell. It should be a, a stairway to enlightenment. Uh, yeah, it's yes. beautiful. Let's, highway let's to prosperity. Stairway to enlightenment. <laughs> let's change the American experience a bit. Oh, thank you, Ray. For information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendogood.com and click on podcast. While you're there, register to log in and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. We have been your hosts. Thank you, Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It's truly been a stairway of enlightenment. <laughs> I love it. It's been something, that's for sure. And thank you, special thank you to our listeners. We save the best for last. You are the best and you have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sampled from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty free through Fistling Studios.